Hey, and thanks for tuning in again. This is a special inbound tech bound episode that I shot with Christopher Penn. And in this conversation, we speak about anything artificial intelligence, the impact of AI on SEO, and of course, GPT-3. Christopher Penn is actually the co-founder and chief data scientist of Trust Insights. He's also the co-host of Marketing Over Coffee and three times IBM Analytics champion. I would really appreciate a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts or a subscription to YouTube and of course the TechBound newsletter so you don't miss any of this content in the future. Thank you very much and enjoy this episode with Christopher Penn. Three, two, one. Christopher Penn, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure, and I'm going to plug your brain for so many things, but I wanted to start with GPT-3. So GPT-3 created this wave of fear that came crashing down on content marketers and SEOs when they saw what it could do uh, a couple of weeks ago. And on the other end, many people were excited because it potentially takes off the weight of creating lots of boilerplate text. So I was curious, what is your take on the impact of or the potential impact of GPT-3 on SEO and content marketing. So I think it's probably important. Uh, have you done talked about GPT-3 yet on your show already? Uh, do your listeners know what this thing even is? Slightly, yes. I, okay. touched, it, I touched on it in a, in a blog post, but I think uh, as a, a quick explainer would be amazing from you. Okay. So there's this group called OpenAI that creates these, among other things, uh, lots and lots of different AI models. And an AI model is a fancy term for software. Right? It's, it's a piece of software. There's this uh, general pre-trained transformer, GPT um, family of, of, of models that this group has created. GPT-1, uh, which was about two years ago. GPT-2, which was last year's, which has been used very heavily for natural language processing and natural language generation, uh, creating, writing net new code. And then this year, the, appropriately, the model is now version 3. Version 3 is a departure from the previous versions in that it now, instead of having you know, a lots of parameters and guardrails to generate text, um, it takes a prompt. So you'll say, you, know, you, for example, write in a quarter of a paragraph, tell it how much content to create, and it will try and, and essentially guess at what the rest of the logical pieces of content should be. And it does some really cool things, uh, one of which that I'm personally uh, entranced by is uh, called neural style transfer, where it is trained with something like how Ernest Hemingway writes. And then you feed it J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter uh, series and you say, rewrite Harry Potter in the style of Ernest Hemingway. And it will change the language structurally to do that. Now, there's some upsides and downsides with the way this new model works. The, obviously, the big upside is that it requires a lot less prompting to use the actual model once you've trained it, uh, and, and it's called priming. And it can do all sorts of very different pieces of tasks. Uh, it can write, for example, reasonably credible uh, poetry. Uh, it can do regular text, you know, marketing direct <laughs> marketing content's not always that exciting. Uh, novels, things like that. It can also generate code. It was, there were examples of it uh, writing code from scratch, given a prompt, say like I generate a window that has these four buttons and it would write this in, um, in Swift was the language being used. Now, that all sounds cool. And as you said, some people very afraid, other people are very optimistic. Here's the downside. It's not really a downside. It's just knowing it. Uh, the limitations. Number one, this model is gigantic. It is 174 billion hyperparameters, um, 
And a hyperparameter is uh, the best way I can explain uh, you know, hyperparameters and, and hyperparameter optimizations. Is think about an oven, right? And you're baking cookies, right? And you're putting these cookies in the oven. And what are all the dials on, on the oven? There's things like time, there's temperature, there's convection, not convection. Each of those are parameters at every degree from like 170, which is your oven's keep warm setting, to like you know 800, which is like you know clean. Uh, um, when you do hyperparameter optimization, you're essentially going to try and bake a cookie at every single possible device setting. And so this model has been you know, taken the English language, and, and I believe it's trained mostly on English, and has essentially tried to write 174 billion different ways, um, these hyperparameters tuned, in order to generate text. That means that from a computational perspective, it is extremely expensive. It requires big hardware, big iron, lots and lots of GPUs. And the ability to use in a production capacity is going to be constrained by those resources. It's not going to be, you're not going to put this on your laptop uh, and run it. Uh, or you can, but you expect to wait a couple of years. For some <laughs> output. Um, so that's one downside. And the second downside of this model right now, at least from the folks who have talked about it, and one of the things that um, early adopters have said is that, you know, it requires what's called a lot of pre-priming, a lot of uh, giving it samples, a lot of, of very tuned text in order to, to know what to do. Um, and that's, again, no surprise. Basic uh, Number one basic of machine learning is you've got to have good data to tune a model on. And the tuning process for this apparently is also very computationally expensive. So is it something that a content marketer or an SEO professional needs to be like, oh, my God, tomorrow I'm out of a job? No, not even close. Um, it requires a lot of expertise. It requires a lot of hardware, uh, and it requires a very well-tuned data set to be able to generate the incredibly cool proofs of concept that have come out. But again, it's not something you're going to you know fire up a web browser and just say, "Okay, make me my next thousand blog posts." That's, we're not there yet. I read somewhere that the, the estimated cost of training that model is between ten and twelve million dollars. So an absolutely incredible. Um, effort needed but where do you fall which side of the coin are you on is it are you more intimidated by what's possible already what we see or are you excited i am very much on the excited side of things um but also i am also very skeptical a lot of, of a lot of the hype that has come around with ai in the last two years um and it's not because the technology is not there. The technology is absolutely uh, ready in many cases for production. Uh, some of the more the more advanced, but not like you know top, cutting edge models, like you know the T five transformers and even GPT two can do some pretty cool stuff. And they can generate you know uh, state of the art results on a lot of different tasks. The challenge for a lot of AI and for a lot of AI companies in marketing, in particular, is are they solving a problem that we actually have, right? You know, or is it, are these solutions in search of a problem? Some things, 100%, are definitely a, a great solution to an existing problem. Using these natural language models, things for like question and answer with chatbots, perfect application, very useful, very well-tuned, um, and can save companies a lot of time and money, and while still providing a great user experience. The, the user um, really feels like they've, you know, they're in a Turing test. Like, am I talking to a human or am I talking to a machine? I don't know, but the answers are pretty good. Uh, so there's that. But on the flip side, uh, there's also you know, a lot of stuff out there that really is just hype. It's, and it, there was a piece in the Financial Times, it's now about a year and a half old, 
Uh, the Financial Times did an investigation of 100 different companies that were, said they were AI software companies and found that 35% of them had none, zero, nothing at all. They had outsourced it to like overseas work in like Bangladesh, um, which, yes, they're using human intelligence, which is still is still the state of the art. Um, but it was they weren't living up to their claims. So I, I'm very much on the optimistic side. I write a lot of my own code. I, I build a lot of my own models and things for my work in marketing. And once you get into it, you realize there are many more limitations than you would, you know, when you go to all the vendor websites, you're on the, you know, the virtual trade show floor now, uh, you know, all these companies are making all these cool promises. And then when you get into the coding, you're like, oh, this is a lot harder than they made it look. <laughs> yeah, it's just a very strong, sophisticated spreadsheet in some, in some cases. Um, but you also wrote a whole series on your blog called the AI-powered SEO process. Can you elaborate on that and tell us what it looks like? Um, so the AI-powered SEO process actually looks very much like the scientific method in a lot of places. But it is essentially what data do you have that you can train on? What are the models you're going to select? Uh, what are the outcomes you're after? Uh, and then do you have the ability to generate the individual pieces using a couple of different techniques and tactics? A big part that I think is immediately useful to a lot of SEO folks is topic modeling. And topic modeling is well beyond proven now. It is it, it is old hat for a lot of you know uh, more mature uh, machine learning folks. But there's just so many good tools for doing uh, topic modeling to be able to say, okay, I'm going to do a search for, I don't know, espresso shops near me, right? And you pull in... Um, the top content or you use the SEO tool of your choice and <clears throat> pull in the top you know, 100 pages on these things. And then maybe you pull another set of like, you know, the, the, the next 900 and then you do a split and say, okay, what do the top 100 pages have in common that are, is absent from the next 900? Build a topic, build, build two topic models, look at the intersection or look at the exclusions and say, okay, what's in common with these top pages? The other thing is that uh, with tools, for example, Facebook's fast text, you can do what's called vectorization, which is where you turn words essentially into all these numerical vectors and say, what are the semantically related things that uh, you that would be associated with this? So I may have an espresso shop. I may or may not mention the word cold brew, right? But we know from how Google works with its own models that it is doing semantic association. So you may end up ranking for like a latte, even though you don't have a page on your website, you know, the, the, this is a load all about our lattes. It's not there. Right. But Google understands from a semantic perspective, if you're an espresso shop, you probably have lattes. Um, and so in a, in a local search, you may come up for you know, so, someone searching for latte near me. Using those topic models, using these techniques um, are, is a great way to start teasing that out and creating content that is logically that should be there based on the data that you're being given. It's kind of, it's not truly doing it because Google's models are much bigger, but it is kind of like re reverse engineering a little bit of it just to understand what else should be in the content you're creating. So that's a big part of this, this process is, is doing inventory, inventorying what you have, inventorying what's in the top results, trying to figure out, again, what are the intersections, what are the places where you've got a gap. And then another one that I think is, is so overlooked is um, key opinion leader or uh, influencer uh, identification. It's still, you know, for good or ill, inbound links are still the gold standard of what predicts like, hey, this site's going to rank reasonably well. And while it, it has been proven time and time and time again that there is zero correlation between social media sharing and search rank, there is 
a logical relationship between getting an influencer to write a blog post about you and getting that link, right? So right. that's a part that I, I feel like so many SEO folks, particularly folks who are still stuck in like 2015 are getting wrong. They're just like, you know, they're, they're just spamming people like, you know, please link to it. I've got this great resource. Please link to it. Uh, as opposed to saying, okay, in this network of people who are expert about this topic, who are the network hubs? How do I approach them carefully build a real relationship over time? And then can I get one piece of content placed with them somehow? Because I know if I do that, it will spread like a fire to the entire first and second degree connections that this person has. And that's a better model of doing this type of influencer outreach than, you know, spamming everybody that you possibly can, which I still get like 40 of those a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's sometimes stunning how many of these old terrible habits are sticking in an environment that develops so rapidly and so fast. And I totally agree with you. I think, you know, as SEOs, we're, we're traditionally very bad at, at taking things to the next meta level. And instead, we're often sticking to and trying to scale these old kind of um, terrible tactics. But in, in the realms of your AI-powered SEO process series, you created a simple k-means cluster based on your blog articles with two moz metrics that basically show your most valuable content in a nutshell um and i'm curious how can seos or basically beginners get started lever leveraging very basic machine learning models for their work what's the entry point so on that particular example using uh k-means clustering um I don't do that anymore. That, that technique um, is very old now, and it's not as good as using Markov chain models. Um, Got it. The, the, there's this concept, and, and this is I think it's an important concept to, to understand. There was an archety archetypical story of uh, a, co a college that opened up its campus and didn't have any sidewalks and just let students wander randomly. And then a year later, paved sidewalks where all the paths were worn. And supposedly this campus, which has never been named, um, <laughs> is a nice, feels like a nice campus to wander. It feels very natural. That concept is still a great concept. And when you look at how people traverse your website, there are paths to conversion. There are logical places that people go on your website behaviorally that lead to conversion. So if somebody's on your site, they're on your blog, and then they go to the, your services page, and then they go to your about page, and then they go to the land your contact page, right? That's a path to conversion. And one of the things that people don't understand about um, attribution analysis is that you can perform the same thing that you do to figure out like which channels work. You should be doing with your content, which of your content works. And it is absolutely possible to model that today with the data that you have in your existing you know, web analytics tool, particularly if you're using Google Analytics. When somebody completes a goal in Google Analytics, and you can restrict this, so your goals that had organic search is one of the drivers, uh, if you want to focus it on SEO. Inside the API, there's goal conversion location, there's previous page one, previous page two, previous page three. So you can see three, the three steps before a goal completion and the goal completion. Using this machine learning technique called Markov chain modeling, you can absolutely understand the importance of what pages are the most important in that sequence to goal completion. That tells you these are the pages that on your site that you must optimize. You must have them not only tuned for SEO, but also tuned for conversion rate optimization to make sure like it may turn out this blog post that you wrote is just fine 
fire. Right? It's on fire. Great. Optimize the heck out of it. Make sure it ranks for every term that you can possibly get it to rank for. But also put some budget towards promoting it, maybe even on the SEM side, because you need traffic to come to that page because you know that is the precursor to a conversion. And so that's not a, a, an easy starting point from a machine learning perspective, but it is the easiest starting point from a results perspective to be able to demonstrate the value of SEO. Hey, we're going to find the pages that already convert, and we're going to tune them up first. They are our priorities to, to take care of. If you want um, a, a place to start with machine learning, the simplest technique of all is linear regression, right? It is, it's, it's, it is technically machine learning. But most people would agree that, like, if you can do it in Excel, it's probably not machine learning. <laughs> um, but looking at the data that you have in your analytics software and trying to assess what are the things that potentially lead to the outcome you care about. So I would say, if you want to get an, a, a head start, look at it at a page level from your Google Analytics data. And, and you can do this in Data Studio. You can do it from the API. I like to do it from the API because you can get more data out of it that way. Um, your pages, the organic searches per page, which is a metric that is in the API, super valuable, people miss it, um, your sessions, and your uh, goal completions, right? And then do a multiple linear regression. Is there a relationship between, say, organic searches to that page and conversions? If there isn't, it means that your search strategy may be attracting searches, but it may be attracting searches from traffic that doesn't convert. Right. One of those things that SEO folks forget an awful lot is we're optimizing, we're optimizing, we're optimizing, we're trying to get you know, top ranking positions and all this stuff, but are we getting a decent quality audience? I look in my search console data and I'm like, huh, I'm getting a lot of traffic. For, you know, There's like three or four terms, I'm getting a lot of traffic, but this is not what I'm about. This is not what I want to be known for. Like, I'm like, you just even just delete that post? Like, <laughs> I don't know if it's worth having. Um, but that simple regression analysis is a great starting place to say, how do I start to understand my data as it relates to SEO and give me some guidance about what I should be doing? Right. And it's funny because I think that in, in some weird twisted way, Google kind of weeds out the bad audience for us uh, ourselves by monitoring or by using things like like user behavior signals and in what capacity they do that and to what extent is still very debatable. Um, but I totally agree with you. And I was wondering, I know that you're a master in R um, and there's a, a hype that has been kicked off, I would say six to 12 months ago in the SEO scene about Python. What kind of, what, because I know this question will pop up, what tools do you make, recommend folks to, to use to get started with like simple linear regressions and then to expand from there? So, okay. The, on the R versus Python thing, that I swear more than anything is an age thing. I'm old, right? I'm in my 40s. Uh, <laughs> I was doing SEO when when uh, the search uh, engine of choice was, uh, you know, Yahoo Directory, <laughs> um, <laughs> and and Alta Vista. I remember Alta Vista, um, <laughs> right? And so I grew up learning languages like C uh, and Java and C plus plus. And so our syntax is much more familiar and comfortable to me. I have a really hard time with Python syntax. Um, I even have a hard time just understanding like, the stupid indenting thing. I'm like, why are we doing loops with indents? This is dumb. Um, but that's me. Um, I think the two languages, of, of the two languages, Python has much more general use. So for someone brand new who's never coded, I think it's probably a better choice. Um, but I would encourage people to try both and see which one just feels better to you. Now, that said, do you need to program to do some of this stuff? No. Um, 
as as you mentioned in the introduction, um, I'm an IBM champion, and one of the tools that IBM has is a fantastic tool called IBM Watson Studio. Uh, inside there is a a you know drag and drop click based modeler where you put these little colored blocks, chain them together, um, and you can drop in like a CSV or an Excel spreadsheet and have it. You you obviously have an inter a graphical interface to you know, push the buttons and things, but you can do a lot of these analyses, regression modeling, XG boost, uh, gradient boosting, uh, clustering, all these statistical and machine learning techniques inside of a no coding environment there are limitations to it but as a beginner to intermediate you're not going to hit those limitations for a long time you're going to be you know learning the the tools and i think it's a really great way uh to try and learn the thinking without getting hung up on the code what should i logically do i should clean my data first okay i'll use the data cleaning module um should i do figure out what data is important sure use the feature selection mo uh, module and then what should i do next um well, I should, maybe I should try and do a numerical analysis. Okay, you use the auto numeric block and you chain four of these little colored blocks together and it spits out a result. And like, okay, you were able to do that without coding. And I think that's a really, really good start. And uh, if you go over to um, Watson Studio, it's it's so one of those sort of free to play uh, things where you, you get a certain number of hours each month. And I, I think you're capped at 50 hours a month for free uh, before you, you have to start paying for it. For a lot of the work that we're doing in SEO, 50 hours is more than enough uh, to do some of these analyses. Uh, but more than anything, it's just to get your brain trained. Okay, this is how I should think about the process of processing my data for you know, SEO purposes or anything. Um, using machine learning techniques, but not necessarily having to sling code. That's fantastic advice. Thank you for that. One person from your audience also asked, do keywords still matter in an SI, uh, sorry, in an AI SEO world? And I really liked your answer because you came back to a lot of these concepts that we touched on, like co-citation, entities, vectorization, and the, you know, just the relationship between um, different entities. I was wondering, can you go a bit deeper into that? Can you elaborate on that? I think if you understand the, the, the models that, Google uses that they've publicly stated, um, you can start to tease out what is important to how they how they think about uh, particularly text. <clears throat> One of the greatest misses I see in SEO is people not going to Google's academic publications page and reading their publications. There are you know hundreds of these things every year. Um, and it pretty clearly tells you the direction that they're researching. Even if the research isn't you know in in the product yet, it gives you a sense, oh, this is what they're thinking about. When they announced, for example, that for processing queries last year, uh, they were starting to use their BERT model, the, the bidirectional encoding representation transformers. The, the first thing people are like, oh, well, you know, that doesn't matter to SEO because they're using it to just understand the context of the query. I'm like, well, it's a, it's a two-sided coin. Yes, you use BERT to understand the context of the, the query, but by definition, you kind of should run the same thing on your corpus so that you can you know do pairwise matching, uh, which is something that, that Google says they do. Uh, it's like, okay, so BERT does matter <laughs> for understanding and taking apart entities and context, prepositions, et cetera, on both the query side and on the result side. So why would you not take your content and run it through any of these transformers and understand what it is that they would see in your text? And so you should be analyzing your text for entity detection. Like, are there, are there entities that are, are logical that should be in your content? At the end of the day, like you said earlier, when we're talking about behaviors and stuff, Google is fundamentally capturing and replicating human behavior right 
Um, so the old advice from 20 years ago is still valid. Right for humans, right? Right as if there was no Google um, so that people would say, wow, that was really good. I want to refer this to my friends. Because as Google's nat uh, natural language processing technologies evolve uh, and the way they, they're doing their matching evolves, it's looking more and more like the kinds of things you would recommend to a friend anyway. Because again, they're, they're, they're copying our behaviors. That means if you don't have access to the state-of-the-art models, you can start to at least play with some of them. One of the greatest uh, gifts Google has given us is Google Colab which if you're unfamiliar with it, is their machine learning laboratory. You can sign up for a free account um, and you get a four-hour working session. Uh, you can start a new one anytime, but after four hours, it times out and shuts down to save resources. And you can load up with their hardware, like Tesla K80s, uh, 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 GPUs and stuff. And you can run code in this environment and you can load up things like the T5 transform, which is one of their, their big transform models. And you load in your text and say, do some analysis with this, do um, some testing with this. One of the great techniques that their T5 transformer does is abstractive summarization. So put in, say, your blog post and say, transformer, read this process it and give me a three sentence summary of what you think this piece of text is about. And it will spit that out. Sometimes it comes out with salad, <laughs> but sometimes <laughs> it comes out with a really good summary. Well, guess what? If the T5 transformer in Google's environment, which is a, is a Google-based transformer, spits this out as an abstractive summary of what it thinks your piece of text is about, what do you think that same transformer is doing for a search results? Right? It's trying to understand what is this piece of text about and does it match these queries? By the way, if you want to, that's a fun tip. If you're doing meta descriptions uh, or, or even just social media posts, Stick through an abstractive uh, summarization tool and get you know a two or three sentence summary. They're, those short summaries are so good. They they go off the rails once you get beyond like you know fifteen hundred characters, uh, fifteen hundred words. But uh, two or three sentences, they just, just nail it. It sounds like something you could build into a headless CMS and just enrich your CMS. You could. It's very cost intensive processing time wise. So like a blog post will take about two and a half to three minutes to 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 process, which is no big deal uh, for one blog post, but if you got a bunch of users on a you know, big CMS, you're talking like hours of compute time. Right. You yourself mentioned um, an add-on for R that you use for natural language processing. I was just curious for the audience, um, what is that and to, to what extent to use it? Um, so there's a bunch, but the, the primary natural language one I use is called Quantata. It's a, uh, it is an open source uh, package just like R itself is open source. And it does a lot of these things like basic uh, term frequency and inverse document frequency scoring, which has been in use in SEO for five years now and is still relevant. Um, but it also does things like cosine similarity, uh, uh, Euclidean distances, etc. One of the things that I'm playing with right now is this idea or this concept. And this is an old concept. This is from, I want to say like the 60s or the 70s. But it's a concept called stylometry. Stylometry is a way of measuring how someone's writing style looks and then comparing it to other writing styles. Like, for example, Anne Rice has a very distinctive way of writing. Ernest Hemingway has a very distinctive way of writing. There's just ways that they use words and phrases. And one of the things I've run into trouble with, with uh, content curation for social media marketing is uh, you'll find a lot of content that you share uh, that it's not quite aligned with your brand, right? It just seems off. And so... 
I'm using these natural language tools and trying to, to build some of this stuff right now to say, okay, not only do I want to share stuff that has like high domain authority and you know lots of organic traffic and stuff like that, but is it st- stylistically similar in tone to my own stuff so that someone who's reading it in my feed would go, oh, that make, it makes total sense why Chris would share that because it sounds just like him. Um, or it sounds close to, topically and, and, and from a language perspective, it sounds like him. <clears throat> from an SEO perspective, this is a fantastic tool, a fantastic to- concept, I would say, um, for things like vetting guest writers, right? If you're trying to get a, a pool of, say, 150 guest writers, have them all submit a sample. You know, it can be any existing sample and run it through a stylometry tool with some of your posts and say, okay, which writers sound like us so that we have a minimum amount of editing to do in order to, to get something that sounds like a polished product as opposed to, I mean, I've, I've, I used to run a guest blogging program for a huge tech company and some of the submissions we got, it's like the person was face rolling across the keyboard. I'm like, <laughs> what happened here? Um, and so these tools, and this one in particular in R, are really good at, at doing those individual techniques. They're a lot like utensils in a kitchen, right? You have different tools for everything. It, it still needs you as the chef to understand what tools to use when and how. And ultimately, we can probably even transfer someone's writing into the style that we want to without you know, having to analyze it in the first place. Yes, and that's where that neural style transfer that in GPT-3 has real potential. Could I take a, a piece of content and rewrite it in my style? Now, that has some very, very interesting and thorny um, implications from a legal perspective because the language it creates is net new language. If I take the, uh, this model and say, GPT-3, ingest all of my blog posts and now rewrite Harry Potter in my voice, it's going to sound very different. It's going to be net new language. Who owns that? Right, and it's it, it is a derivative work. So under standard copyright law, would follow it, it would qualify as a derivative work. But could you prove it? I mean, obviously, if the character is still named Harry Potter, you could. Uh, <laughs> but if you did like uh, a find replace, like um, uh, E.L. James did with Fifty Shades of Grey, which was originally a Twilight fan fiction, they really just did a fan, you know find replace on the character names. It's no longer Twilight. Um, it is. It's now an independent work. It's the characters all still have essentially the same characteristics as the the Twilight characters. So if I take something like Twilight and say rewrite it in um, in my style, whose work is that? Because I didn't really write it. The machine did. It understood my style and it took a source material. This, for SEO per, uh, uh, perspectives, presents a very, very interesting challenge because if you have an industry leader, like say uh, in tech, like you have Cisco, right? And you can do an assessment of which are the, the best linked blog posts on Cisco's blog and say you're, uh, uh, well, Netgear, Cisco owns Netgear. Uh, well, we'll just use it for an example. Say you're Netgear, you're Netgear's marketing team. Can you, what happens if you copy and paste Cisco's top 50 blogs, use a, a neural style transfer tool with your own stuff, and now you have 50 new blog posts that are exactly topically identical to Cisco's, but a unique and new, new language. From an SEO perspective, you're probably going to do pretty well because they, they're going to cover the same major points. But who owns that? Whose copyright is that? Uh, and what has happened? Can it be proved in a court of law? The answer is probably not. Yeah, it's fascinating. It, it, it touches slightly on fake videos like, you know, Obama saying things that mm-hmm. uh, was machine learning created. But then at the same time, I think... And it comes a little bit full circle to the fear that uh, I mentioned in the first question, which is that, say, we could we, we know the elements of a good story, for example, <clears throat> right? Or several different story arcs and how they work and how popular they are. You could theoretically just take something like the hero journey, which is one of the most classical story arcs, 
um, that exist and just inject any topic on that and just keep churning out these amazing stories, right? And I think the underlying fear there is also to be redundant because the machine gets so much better and this might be future talks still, right? I, th I don't think we're, we're there and this is something we established, but um, just the, the sheer thought of having these structures that we know work well, which we could have analyzed with AI in the first place to validate that they work well, and then using models to basically create our own from that. I think it's a, it, it paints a picture of a world that's a little sinister, but also a little bit exciting. I, I would say, though, if you've ever intentionally or accidentally read a trashy romance novel, that is functionally <laughs> exactly the same story in you know, 100,000 different versions. You know, person meets person, person falls in love with person, strange conflict person, you know, resolves with person, and, and off you go. Um, that hasn't changed. If you read, uh, for example, the Warriors series by Aaron Hunter, which is a kid's, like a young adult series, it's exactly the same story over and over again. It's a team of five writers. There actually is no Aaron Hunter. It's the same team of five writers. They're basically just recycling the same plots over and over again with different different cats. Um, <laughs> and so I don't... I, people, f people just inherently find value and comfort in repetition in, in stuff that they already know i mean uh there actually is a term for that i'm drawing a blank on what it is but it is one of the reasons why you is why rewatch the same series you've watched on netflix over and over again like why are you still watching this thing you know how it ends um people do it as, as a form of comfort and certainly in uh as the 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 beaten to death expression goes in these unprecedented times you know anything that reduces anxiety is a good thing that said one of the greater dangers that no one's talking about, and that is a problem in the tech industry and in the SEO industry, is that you need to have a very strong ethics foundation um, in order to use AI responsibly. That can be anything from the basics of, hey, are we pulling from enough diverse content sources to who are we sharing? Do we have an implicit or an overt bias in who we share or who we link to? Um, to how are we calibrating our, our marketing results on, on a representative audience? Should our audience be representative of the general population? And like if you're a B2C marketer, the answer is probably yes. Um, and if your audience is non-representative, you have to ask why. Is it in violation of the law? Um, and, and even if it's not, is it the most profitable uh, possible outcome? Uh, a real simple example of this is the one I give all the time uh, about uh, My Little Pony. So My Little Pony is a toy made by Hasbro Company, and it is ostensibly targeted towards uh, girls 8 to 14 years old. <clears throat> if you train and all of your data and all of your modeling is based on that assumption, um, you're going to create models and content and all this stuff. But, and there's a Netflix special about this, there's an entire audience of men 26 to 40 who are rapidly in love with my little pony they're called bronies there's conferences and conventions but guess what they have way more disposable income than an eight-year-old if you build your entire marketing strategy and your seo strategy on this one bias you have of you know uh, eight to 14 year old girls you've missed a market opportunity a lucrative market opportunity and you have a real risk of of not making as much money as you could have um whether it's for yourself your company whatever but even in things like seo we have to be aware of and we have to be constantly questioning are we biased are we baking biases into our assumptions um are we baking bias into our data sources when we build you know keyword lists even something as simple as a keyword list what language are you using you know there's a 
uh, in linguistics, this uh, this uh, phrase, you know, English is the language of privilege, right? Is the the, the language of rich people. Um, and guess what? The majority of the planet doesn't speak it. Uh, <clears throat> if you're optimizing for your market, are you by optimizing English alone intentionally ignoring potentially lucrative other markets? You know, are you if you don't have an understanding of you know Portuguese, you could be missing all of Brazil. You, if you don't have an understanding of Chinese, you're missing you know, 1.3 billion people. And so we have to constantly ask ourselves, are we optimizing, are we doing SEO for assumptions that are no longer valid compared to the market we could have? I love that point for two reasons. I'm going to tell you why, Christopher. The first one is because when I worked at Atlassian, I actually met a brony and I had no <laughs> idea about what was going on. I, I Normal guy. And he had his, his uh, I think it was a developer, and his background, his laptop background was My Little Pony. And I couldn't connect the dots for the life of it. So one day I asked him, dude, what's going on here? And he was like, yeah, I watched My Little Pony. I was like, isn't that a kid show? And he was like, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and then he explained this whole concept of bronies and how huge it is. As you mentioned, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a huge market, actually. It's very, very uh, potent. And the second reason for why I love this is because I did a little bit of research. And in one of your most recent newsletters, you actually wrote about questioning your assumptions. And I'm going to read about, I'm going to read really quickly what you wrote. You said, as busy marketing professionals, we don't give ourselves enough time to study, research, investigate, and most importantly, challenge our assumptions. When we fail to do this, we operate under our old knowledge. And in a rapidly changing world, old knowledge is dangerous. How do you, in your daily work question your assumptions um there's two ways one is i have you know obviously my own sets of checklists and things to ask myself are these problems and actually if you want to get a head start on this, there's a great free book on amazon called the ethics of data science by dr hillary mason i think it is mandatory reading for anybody who works with data in any in any way shape or form it's totally free it's not even you know kindle unlimited or anything it's totally free go buy it and read it It'll get it and read it. Um, and two, I do a lot of content creation. Writing my newsletter is how I stay up to date is one of my quote secrets, right? Because in order to curate content and, and, and stuff and, and build these newsletters, I have to read, I have to constantly be keeping up to date. I'm like what's going on with this thing. I, I'm looking at uh, my social feed for next week. Um, and there's stuff in here like, huh, I don't recall seeing that. I don't recall seeing that happening. I, I must have missed the news on this you know, particular thing. <clears throat> and in doing that, it keeps me up to date, keeps me you know, fresh and, and, and aware of what changing what changes are happening. And because the, the input sources for a lot of uh, the tools I've built are more diverse than just marketing blogs, there's a lot of other stuff that gets finds its way in here. Like there's a whole piece right now on um, measuring the temperature of meltwater <clears throat> as a proxy for understanding how quickly glaciers and polar ice caps are melting. Like, okay, that's cool. <clears throat> Can I find data on that? Maybe I should go explore that. You know, on a Saturday night or whatever, just go play around and go, huh, there might be something to, to this. SEO professionals, all marketing professionals need to be dedicating time every single week in their work um, towards reading and researching towards, you know, reading the top blogs in the field and reading, you know, the not top blogs, you know, doing some digging around, looking at uh, following reliable people on Twitter and seeing what they share. Uh, I think that's one of the things that, again, people forget is that it's when you follow somebody and they're sharing stuff, you're not 
following just the person. You're following their media diet. You're following what's important to that person. If you follow, you know, Bill Slosky and you follow uh, Danny Sullivan, you follow, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I can't remember, what's her name? Alida uh, Solis. Yes, thank you. Um, you follow all these folks and see what they share. You start then reading their sources and it helps you bridge out. It's kind of like how you find new music. A friend says, hey, listen to this song. You check out the song. You check out the band. You're like, oh, I like this band. And you, you know, start, re- you know, listen to all their music and stuff. That's how you stay fresh. And it is more important than ever that SEO practitioners be doing this because the underlying technologies that companies like Google are using are changing constantly. Um, they're upgrading, they're, they're doing new stuff. And if you're not following along, you're operating on techniques that may be counterproductive now. They worked five years ago, but they haven't worked in three years. Like, and why would you, why would you keep doing something that doesn't work? Yeah, those are fantastic experts. And it's funny that you mentioned forgetting and things that don't work because you also wrote about this concept of everything decays in your newsletter. So you wrote everything decays, but in digital marketing, much of what we do every day decays a little. You experience it on a daily basis. Every email campaign that goes out has a few more non-working addresses. Every social media account gains and loses followers. Every piece of code and software grows a little more stale every day if it's not regularly maintained. And then you wrote the antidote to decay is not only maintenance, but the injection of new energy, new blood. An email list can be regularly maintained, but if you're not adding new subscribers, it will continue to shrink over time until it's a a pale shadow of itself. The same is true of your social accounts, your CRM, your marketing automation software, everything. So explain to me what that means to you. It means exactly what it said. It is that you're if you're not growing, you're you're receding. There is no such thing as standing still in marketing. There really isn't. Um, from an SEO perspective, you know this. You know that if you're not getting new inbound links and your old links are decaying, you're going to lose ranking. Right? It's it's as simple as that. What are you doing to keep growing? What are you doing to foster growth? And more importantly, to also the previous, what are you doing now to set the foundation for future growth? That's probably one of the greatest challenges people are not thinking about is what are you doing today that won't pay dividends today? It won't pay dividends tomorrow, but it may pay dividends in a year or two years or three years. A lot of things like investing in yourself and and building your machine learning capabilities and building your knowledge of how to do these things are things that will pay long-term dividends if you have the good sense to use them. Just like, you know, building that relationship with that influencer, it's going to take you probably a year, a year to get well known to an influencer my friend mitch joel says this fantastically it's not who you know it's who knows you right when somebody says hey i need to talk about seo i'm going to talk to kevin okay it's who knows you that relationship takes time to build and it takes effort and it takes a willingness to actually want to talk to these people um that's the foundation for growth, and it has to be something that you have a plan for that you invest in over the long term, which I recognize is a super challenging thing these days because these days you know, we're all so focused on you know this quarter, this month, this week, trying to get just get things done, stay afloat, keep the business running. Um, we're in a, a an environment now where forecasting anything beyond two weeks is impossible. Like you literally have no idea what's going to happen in two weeks. Oh look, you know, massive, largest, uh, strongest hurricane to hit uh, U.S. the U.S. mainland ever. Like oh, that was this week. Oh by the way, California is still on fire. Oh by the way, we have brand new police murders going on. You know, in in several other cities. It's like. You can't forecast any of this stuff, um, but you can and you you are in control of yourself. You are in control of your own 
progression of what things you need to know. So one of the things I, I would suggest to people, I tell this to people all the time is go to any major marketing site, like marketing land or whatever, right? And just look at the categories in like their blog role and ask yourself, do I know anything about this? If so, what do I need to know anything about this? Why? And what are the things I think are, you know, have the potential to grow in a couple of years? Should I be training myself on that now? And that gives you a blueprint, a, a professional development plan to invest in yourself to say, okay, I got to learn more about email marketing. I know it's a thing. Email's not going anywhere. Everyone says email's dead. I've been saying this for the last 15 years, and yet here we are still sending email every day. Um, what do I need to know in order to be able to make that a part of my, my professional development. I, I can't emphasize it enough. You are in control of yourself. You are in control of your professional development. What could you, what plan are you going to build for the next two years for yourself to learn some of these techniques? And that's exactly how this statement arrives on, on my end between the lines. It's, you can drive a Volvo and you can tune that Volvo up, but at some point you buy a Tesla and it's a completely different thing. <laughs> right? so, so, you know, I was, I was just curious, like between optimizing and let's call it innovation or new things, who do you see doing that extremely well? Who do you, who do you think invests enough, like some brands, people who invest enough in long-term growth while keeping the boat afloat? That's a good question that I don't have good answers for because I see across the board companies not investing enough in people. Um, I see people not investing enough in themselves. <clears throat> there are some folks, um, I see them a lot in my Slack group, for example, uh, who are asking great questions. That's That, by the way, is the indicator of who's got the potential for growth is by the questions they ask. Um, people who are asking good questions, people who are asking consistently better questions shows you they're on a path towards growth. And you know, there are a number of folks, I can't name them because I haven't get, they haven't given me their permission to name them, um, but they're in like our analytics for marketers Slack and, and, you know, uh, and other Slack instances. But when I go to conferences, even virtually now, and I listen to the questions I get in the Q&A period, questions aren't different. The questions aren't better. The questions aren't showing that people are growing What's happening is that it's sort of this bizarre turnstile or, or treadmill. Uh, as soon as somebody gains some proficiency, they get promoted, they bring in a new person, and the new person is starting from ground zero. There's no knowledge transfer. And so the new person goes to the conference and says, hey, you know, sh what should I be doing with my keyword lists? Like, that was fine 10 years ago. But you know, this person's brand new. They're 23 years old. They're you know, first or second job out of, out of university. Like, okay, so here we go again. Um, and I don't see, and this is one of the things I think is most concerning, I don't see any kinds of events or groups or anything for the intermediate to advanced practitioners. Now, it's entirely possible that they exist and they're secret for a reason. I remember when I was doing affiliate marketing, one of the jokes was you go to Affiliate Summit and you're seeing everything that worked great last year. <laughs> <laughs> and absolutely no one in their right mind will tell you what's working for them right now because they need to make their money now. Um, but there aren't, there isn't enough content out there for the advanced practitioner. Like I would say of the, the blogs that I read, you know, Simo Ahava's blog and Google Tag Manager is probably one of the few that's constantly like, hey, this is advanced, deal with it. Right. <laughs> um, uh, but there's not a, a ton else in the marketing world. Now there's a ton in the machine learning world, in the AI world, because a lot of it's still academic. Uh, and that's where I definitely see a lot of advancement. 
Simu Hava's blog, definitely recommendable. And I'll have all of these things in the show notes, all the people you mentioned, all the books you mentioned. Of course, uh, tons of links to um, your blog, to your newsletter, to Marketing Over Coffee. And I want to wrap this up, but not before I ask you two more questions. And the first one is, in or outside of work, SEO, AI, whatever, what are you genuinely excited about right now? Uh, outside of work entirely, you mean? Um... You can pick inside work, outside work, whatever comes to oh. mind. So inside work, uh, a lot of the work in things like stylometry and natural language processing, I'm doing more and more with natural language processing. I'm about to build my first uh, recommendation engine based on stylometric uh, stuff to say like, hey, these, these are the pieces that are stylistically similar because um, I, th- I want to test it out to see if that, how that compares to um, what I get out of Markov chain modeling. So that's pretty cool and it's going to be fun. Uh, I just started playing with a, uh, a pre-trained uh, music separation AI model from uh, Dieter. You give it an MP3 file like you know Taylor Swift's uh, latest song, right? And it's it uses pre-trained models to split apart that file into the vocals, drums, lead instruments, and accompaniment. And it sounds good. It sounds so good. I was testing it out the other day, um, and I'm like, okay, it, the, what it came out with to separate the vocals from the backing track is enough that you could take the backing track and use it for karaoke, right? It's good enough. Um, so that stuff is a lot of fun. Um, one of my sort of inside outside, it's an interest. It's not something I'm excited about. It's actually the exact opposite. I dread it. Um, is I write a daily email newsletter called Lunchtime Pandemic that is about what I've I see and research and curate about the pandemic. Uh, if you go to lunchtimepandemic.substack.com, you can you can sign up for it. I was hoping to not be doing this newsletter anymore. I was hoping like to be able to say in August, yeah, I'm retiring this newsletter. We've got things under control. Great. Instead, we don't. Um, but I take content from the New England Journal of Medicine, the Lancet Journal of American Medical Association, Brief 19, um, Stat News, and I'm looking for articles that are prescriptive or that have it clinical relevance i am not in any way shape or form a medical professional but i read a lot and you know at, at six months of doing this okay i can tell this is credible this is not that's a preprint that's been peer-reviewed um and looking for things like okay this is what's likely to happen and just in general like stuff like that like we had this hurricane hit uh, a bunch of refineries uh, have taken some damage and stuff and you know, us, others are restarting but it's going to have an impact on gas prices so yesterday i shared to folks like hey you haven't already top off your tank. You know, if you live in North America, top off your gas tank just in case, because um, there, there's the, always the potential in the strong storm for shortages afterwards. Amazing, and I can recommend everybody to check that out. The last question that I want to leave you with is: What are all the places on the internet that people can find and follow you? So the two places to make it easy: um, my company and work, uh, TrustInsights.ai. Today's blog post, which will be up obviously forever, is on pumpkin spice data. So we took a look at uh, 378 products that have the name pumpkin spice in the in the name of the product, their ingredients, their calories, etc. It's a fun data dive. Um, so TrustInsights.ai. And then for my personal stuff, just go to ChristopherSPen.com. Those, those are the two places you can find everywhere else from there, but those are the places to go. Christopher, I need, a, I need to sit down for 10 minutes and digest all the information you just uh, gave me because that was absolutely phenomenal. I thank you very, very much for your time. Everybody go check out Christopher Penn's stuff on it. He's all over. His stuff is really high quality, top notch. And I appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. Have a nice day. You too.